I don't buy every conspiracy theory out there. In fact, you might say I'm a curious skeptic. But there is just enough evidence to consider the possibility that the powers that be are manipulating us like so many pawns on a chessboard. That's why we hear the theories out on Jim Harold's Conspiracy Corner. Welcome to the Conspiracy Corner. I'm Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you once again. And I'm really excited about today's show because uh, we have a really neat guest, and I am so uh, I'm so interested to get his his take on it. Now, my background is is that I got my master's degree, so I've and I was a research assistant, so I, I I don't have a PhD or anything like that, but I certainly had a little bit of exposure to academia. And our guest today is very accomplished in that area. He's Lance DeHaven Smith. He is a professor at the Reuben Askew School of Public Administration and Policy down at Florida State University. Uh, PhD. Yeah, yeah, from Ohio State. I told him before, go Bucks, because I'm from Ohio myself. And I am really looking forward to his take on it because he is from academia. And usually, when you put conspiracy theory on one side and academia on the other, they, they don't seem to mix quite well. They're, at least my perception is there's always been a feeling that conspiracy theorists are a bunch of kooks and, uh, <laughs> and, and never the twain shall meet. But uh, Lance uh, may have uh, a, a, different, uh, a different opinion of conspiracy theories than, than my stereotype, and I'm so glad to have him with us. Uh, a great background. Um, Again, he is a professor at the uh, Ruben O. D. Askew uh, School of Public Administration and Policy at Florida State University. He's a former president of the Florida Political Science Association. He's uh, the author of more than a dozen books, including The Battle for Florida, which analyzed the disputed 2000 presidential election. He has appeared on Good Morning America, The Today Show, NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw, CBS Nightly News with Dan Rather, The News Hour with Jim Lair, and other national TV and radio shows. And we're so glad to have him on the Conspiracy Corner today. Dr. Lance DeHaven-Smith, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jim. I'm glad to be here. It's good to be in Ohio. It's a great state. And Ohio State University is a great university. I really appreciate the education I received there. Well, we we're we're proud to call you a, a Buckeye. Uh, although I'm sure your allegiance, of course, has got to be with Florida State these days. I, I, I'm so um, interested to get your take on this because I consider myself an educated person, and when I talk to my friends about conspiracy, particularly the ones of more of an academic bent, they kind of look at me cockeyed and say, "Conspiracy theory? That's a bunch of wingnuts." Uh, how did the word, because really, if you think about it, conspiracy theory, th- th- that's just saying a theory of a conspiracy. It, it wouldn't seem to be any, in any way politically charged. How did that term come to be almost a, a, curse, a, a, a curse word? Well, it actually uh, traces back to the Central Intelligence Agency. After the Warren Commission report came out in 1964, a number of critics cited the commission itself the evidence in the report indicating that there was at least more than one shooter. Um, there were other anomalies in the report, but uh, if you look at just simply at the trajectory of the bullet at the, that entered the neck and came out uh, President Kennedy's back, the report said it, went in, it was an entry wound into his back and came out his neck. Um, if, for that to be a shot from six floors up, uh, is almost impossible because the trajectory goes up. Uh, the entry 
the wound in the back was five inches below the top of the collar, and the and the wound in the neck was an inch below the the top button of the collar. So uh, the trajectory was up, and you can't get that from firing six floors above from behind. So there were things like that in the report that just on its face suggested that uh, Kennedy had been shot from the front and that the story in the Warren Commission report was uh, not factually sound. And so people started writing about this, and the CIA got concerned about it and introduced a global propaganda program that uh, urged the CIA station chiefs around the, the world to go to their media contacts. That was the phrase in the dispatch or the memo that went to these offices. And it said for them to uh, discredit, the call these people conspiracy theorists and point out that uh, so the CIA claimed that there was no evidence of a conspiracy and that people who uh, promoted these ideas were in it for personal gain and that they loved their own theories and had other reasons and that they were under the influence of propagandists, of uh, uh, communist propagandists was the term. So uh, this memo was sent out in, in 1967 and within a few years you had the conspiracy theory concept being applied as a term of derision and dismissal and associated with paranoia and people being harebrained and that kind of thing. So it really originates with the CIA. There's nothing, uh, conspiracy is a concept in the law. We, we apply it all, all the time. Racketeering, the RICO Act, is about conspiracy. The Nuremberg War Crimes trials uh, after World War II prosecuted in the first charge in the indictment was for conspiracy by the Nazis to take control of the what was a parliamentary government and foment a war of aggression to expand their territories. So we've applied the concept internationally. We applied uh, conspiracy, the concept uh, nationally, and it's well developed, but it takes on this pejorative connotation after the CIA propaganda program. Uh, one thing I want to note for our listeners, Dr. DeHaven Smith, when he talks about weapons and ballistics, I would think he would have a, a good leg to stand on. He was an infantry rifleman in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam era. So just a, a little note there, a, a man who knows whereof uh, he speaks. I just got done reading... Uh, a little bit of, uh, not a little bit, the whole book, Hit List by uh, Richard Belzer, who is a, uh, uh, you know, people know him first of a stand-up comic and then, of course, of uh, uh, a star of that uh, successful TV series, Homicide. Um, and, and, and I think right there, people might say, ah, he doesn't know anything about this. But it, it came about as a very fascinating treatment of all the strange deaths that followed the Kennedy assassination. Um, and I think some people read that and say, they almost, it's almost like jury nullification. You know, you can throw up as much evidence as you want that something strange was going on. Maybe not, we don't know exactly what was going on, for example, with the JFK assassination. And people just kind of say, they don't believe it because they don't believe it. And it doesn't matter what you, what you say. Uh, 
how do those of us who, you know, again, I, I, as I told you before, uh, the program and I've shared with our audience, I'm kind of in the middle of the road. I, I, I believe in some conspiracy theories and other ones I'm like, ah, that's, that's too far out there. But certainly in the case of the JFK assassination, I think even um, the congressional uh, committees of the late 70s that uh, were convened on it uh, found that it was likely the result, if I recall correctly, of a, a conspiracy. So it's not just me saying that or just a few, uh, quote, wingnuts. A lot of people, many people believe that. But uh, how do you deal with that when somebody just says, I'm not going to listen? Well, part of what is going on is people who dismiss these uh, many uh, deaths around the Kennedy assassination, for example, are themselves relying on a theory. It's a coincidence theory. They don't recognize that. They derive the conspiracy theory, but they don't realize that, well, they have a theory, and that is that all these strange connections are not important, that they're just coincidences. And the scientific study of coincidences is called statistics. And statistics teaches us that the odds of one event happening are amount to basically the odds of how many different parameters or permutations of something can happen, and then how many times could it not happen. So let's take the the, uh, witnesses around the Kennedy assassination. Let's say you had uh, 10 witnesses and one got killed. Then the the odds of that would be happening by chance are one out of 10. The, this what statistics tells us is as events pile up, as they accumulate, the odds of it being by chance become infinitesimally small, very small. So if you had 10 witnesses and five got killed, the odds of that happening be, would be one in tens of thousands. Uh, it's like flipping a coin. If you flip a coin and it comes up heads one time, that's no big deal. I mean, you know, 50-50. If it comes up head the second second time, it's a little strange, but not in, not in, certainly not impossible for that to be by chance. It's one out of, I think, four. When it comes up heads five times or ten times, you know you've got a coin problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> Somebody's uh, playing a game there. Yes, but um, the other thing that I've suggested with these events is that rather than look at these one by one, so most people will have a theory of the of the Kennedy assassination and the, uh, a theory of Bobby Kennedy's assassination, a theory of Martin Luther King's assassination. I suggest that we look at all of these events together, comparatively and collectively. So just to take a, take a simple example, you had the assassination of John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, and Martin Luther King in the 1960s, and an attempted assassination of George Wallace in 1972, an attempt on Reagan in 1980. If you look at the first ones, the Kennedys and Martin Luther King and Wallace, um, particularly the Kennedy assassinations, well, they were connected to Nixon and and Johnson. Uh, neither Nixon nor Johnson would have ever become president, in all probability, without the assassinations of the Kennedys. Uh, Bobby Kennedy was running for president uh, in 1968 when Nixon was running. 
And Kennedy would have been elected if he had not been killed. And, of course, John Kennedy defeated Richard Nixon in 1960 in one of the very closest elections in American history. Yes. If you were studying an ordinary crime and you had a husband whose wife died, fell in the shower, wealthy woman, falls in the shower, and he inherits a bunch of money. Now, you would automatically be suspicious because it's an improbable event, and he had something to gain. If a second wife dies <laughs> of a fall, then you're, you're not just suspicious, you're downright uh, confident that there's something going on, and you would expect the police to really focus on this person and dig and dig and dig. Um, we don't do that with um, elite political crimes and tragedies because we're discouraged from being suspicious. We're told that if you're suspicious, you're a conspiracy theorist. So our tendency is to not see connections because we don't look for connections across these crimes. But John Kennedy Bobby, and Bobby Kennedy being killed, we should immediately be asking, you know, who gained, who benefited? And we should be looking at their behavior. Uh, on the day Kennedy was assassinated, John Kennedy was assassinated, uh, President, Vice President Johnson had the body taken from Dallas and flown back to Washington for an autopsy. And you, you may think, well, that's normal. Well, it, it actually was a violation of the law. Right. Uh, the, the autopsy, it was a, under the law at the time, it was a murder under Texas law. The autopsy was to be performed by a Dallas medical examiner. The medical examiner told the FBI and the Secret Service this, and they insisted on taking the body regardless. Now that, you know, you, you may think, well, it was a you know crazy time and all kinds of wild events, but the reality is we normally don't let people commit felonies even when they're upset. And so we we should have been very concerned about it, and 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 interviewed people, checked alibis, offered deals to the lower level people if they would implicate the upper level people. This is what we do in normal crime investigations. Uh, we control the crime scene. We process the crime scene. People may not be aware, but the limousine that President Kennedy was riding in was washed. While it was a, while it was still at Parkland Hospital, wow, yeah, um, that's destruction of evidence and a capital offense. It's you know it it looks suspicious as guilty behavior. Uh, the the car was taken back to Washington that night, and then in a day or two sent to Detroit, and it was repaired. There were uh, bullet holes in the chrome around the windshield. But that was important evidence. The blood splatter on the back of the car would have told us if Kennedy had been shot from the front, which is what the eyewitnesses said, is that the back the trunk was had brain matter and skull pieces and blood on it. And we could have used that and the bullet holes in the in the windshield area to make some determination of the direction of the shots and the number of shots. So it's very significant this evidence was destroyed. What I call for, what I say in my book is probably the easiest 
and most effective thing for us to do to to make sure that these events are being properly handled is to just use our normal protocols when they occur. So when there's a, a murder, control the crime scene, put the evidence in a clear chain of custody, uh, check the alibis of everybody who benefited from the event, uh, you know, interrogate these people just the way you would a, a normal suspect. You know, ask them, well, where were you? What were you? What were your thoughts about this event? Did you have any connections with anyone who might have been uh, plotting against the the president and so on? But we don't we don't see that, and I think it's very telling that we do not see it. Well, it's interesting. It's kind of like the golden rule: he who has the gold makes the rules. He who has the power makes the rules. And how do yeah. you how do you how do you overcome that? Because people are intimidated by power, and also I think particularly if you look at the Kennedy assassinations and assassinations of that era, uh, America was still in the basque of uh, post World War II. Uh, the greatest generation, people felt that they were uh, their duty was to be patriotic, and I think questioning authority, at least at that time, pre Watergate and and and, and pre um, the debacle of Vietnam, if you're talking about the JFK assassination, uh, people were trusting of their government, and if you called them into question, you know the, the next thing that's coming, are you a communist? So I, I could understand how people would want to believe President Johnson and the Warren Commission. Yes, you can understand why they would, but it's it's un-American, actually. Uh, Americans, historically, have been very suspicious of authority. Uh, the Declaration of Independence is essentially a conspiracy theory. It's about King George plotting to take away the rights of the colonists uh, under British law. Uh, we have the Burr conspiracy, where Aaron Burr was prosecuted for trying—this is in 18, about 1805— uh, was prosecuted for uh, trying to break away the Western territories and form his own country. And he was not convicted because there was not an eyewitness to some of the uh, uh, planning that would come forward. But uh, that prosecution was advocated by President Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson. Um, we have many uh, events where the top leadership in the country raises questions about conspiracies. Uh, Abraham Lincoln on the floor of the House of Representatives accused President Polk of lying the country into the Mexican-American War. It's not until World War II that you see this reluctance uh, to, to question our leaders. The, the idea that they will plot against us is written into our Constitution. It's the checks and balances system. We assume that these guys other things equal, will take away our rights and liberties. So we pit them against each other and try to hold them in check that way. So part of what has happened since World War II, basically, is that we have been discouraged from questioning these events and our leaders. In part, it was because of the Cold War. But in part, it was because of our leaders themselves uh, criticizing and threatening and challenging people who raised questions about them. You know, if a journalist starts writing about these things, they'll never get access to the president again. So how are they to report on the White House? It's very difficult. 
Yeah, or worse, to ask uh, Dorothy Kilgallen. Yes, right. Well, people, you know, Dorothy uh, Hunt was, when when Howard Hunt was blackmailing the White House, he was the Watergate burglar, and he and his comrades had been arrested and were in uh, a, the jail in Washington, D.C., and they had uh, mortgages to pay and kids in college, and so Howard Hunt sent his wife, Dorothy, to the White House to demand some financial support, and she was the bagman, so to speak. Uh, Richard Nixon specifically said it was hush money, but said he would pay it and did pay it. Um, but Dorothy Hunt was killed in a plane crash in Chicago uh, carrying $10,000 in cash, and that was the end of it. Hunt, Howard Hunt pled guilty. There was never any further talk of blackmail. There was a grand jury impaneled in Chicago that brought Bob Haldeman, the chief of staff for Nixon, in, uh, subpoenaed him to testify. They thought that the plane crash was suspicious, to say the least. Uh, they didn't get anywhere with it. But, um, you know, I think if people understood uh, the um, amount of bizarre connections and, and events surrounding Watergate and surrounding these assassinations, they would be much more skeptical of the official accounts. Now, uh, people may think, even people who put credence in, in conspiracies of that era from the 60s and 70s, they would say, well, you know, that was the 60s and 70s, the era of Johnson and Nixon, probably a couple of the most corrupt guys in American political history, but that surely doesn't happen today. Now, would you say that uh, they're uh, they're spot on or maybe a little bit delusional? Do these conspiracies uh, at high levels continue to this day? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, we should be very suspicious of the anthrax letter attacks. Uh, 9-11 is suspicious. The, the, the warnings were received. There was no effort to strengthen the nation's air defenses. There was no communication to the public about this. Uh, the the president said that he could never have imagined planes being used as weapons and flown into buildings, and yet there were war games that day that did that. And the president had been at the G8 conference in Italy, and they had put him on a boat on a ship in the harbor because they were afraid that somebody would hijack a plane and fly it into his hotel. They had many uh, examples where this kind of scenario had been available. So it was disingenuous. It was lying to say that they had not and could not have considered this. But the anthrax letter attacks, what people don't realize, uh, the, the strain of anthrax was shown to come from the U.S. military. The U.S. Army developed it. But more importantly, I think, is that the White House was put on Cipro, an antibody to prevent anthrax infections, the night of 9-11. And nobody was told. Then you say, well, that was precautionary. Well, wait a minute. Nobody was told that this to, to expect this, an anthrax attack. Uh, the Senate, the House was not told. The leaders were not told. The American people were not told. Five people died of the anthrax letter attacks. Uh, the postal workers were infected. So if this was precautionary, why was no word given to anybody else? Um, I think it's, it's, in criminology, it's called guilty knowledge. When you act on knowledge that you would have to have, uh, 
that you that you would have to be implicated in the crime to know about. In this case, the anthrax letters are not mailed for about 10 days after 9-11. So somebody thought they were coming and kept it quiet and put the White House on CIPRO. I'd like to know who that was, but there was never any investigation of this. It appeared as a story in the Washington Post for one day, and that was the end of it. Um, so I, anyway, I think... I think when it comes to national security events and wars, that we should be very suspicious when there are, are attacks that are, I mean, think about this. These planes were hijacked. They were in the air for over an hour when we knew about it. They overcame the multi-layered air defenses of the most powerful nation in the world. They struck the Pentagon. That's got to be the most protected airspace in the world. Yeah, it's a, it's a, either 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 it's uh, not very reassuring about uh, our national defenses, or uh, possibly worse, uh, as you said, it seems like maybe there was uh, possibly an intentional hole left in those uh, defenses. Now I have to, uh, and, and and I'll bring up something that kind of blew my mind at the time of nine eleven. And again, I've always kind of taken the company line, and I, and I probably fall victim to the uh, patriotic. Uh, siren song as it were because i've always considered myself to be a very patriotic american and even though we have our faults i still think we're the best game in town uh but uh, at the time and, and even now i have a very hard time believing that our government would let this happen or even somehow encourage it even as i'm talking with you i'm very torn about it but the one thing that did strike me funny and it struck me funny the day that it happened Within a couple of hours, I think it was, uh, I don't know exactly, but if you remember that uh, that stunning yeah. live coverage on the, the networks and cable news and so forth, and they start flashing up a picture of Osama bin Laden yes. and yes. saying, oh, this could be the work of Osama bin Laden. And I'm like, uh, and excuse my French, but if you knew about this bastard before all this happened... Why didn't you stop him if you were that aware that he could pull something like this off? I mean, to me, uh, what I've got to compare it to, and I don't know, I'm sure somebody's made this comparison. If you remember the old James Bond movies where there's like Goldfinger or something in some hideaway and he's going to attack all these countries. I remember as a kid watching that and I'm like, that could never happen. Some international villain who would be able to attack the most powerful countries in the world. That would never happen. And and here I see it playing out on TV. And within a couple of hours of the strike, they're showing a picture as big as life saying this is the guy that's behind it. If they had this foreknowledge, why didn't they stop him? Yes. Um, I think also if we ask ourselves, well, one thing I would say is that there's this idea that our government would did, would not do something like this. And also that if they did try to do something like 9-11, they, they are not competent enough to pull it off. And even if they pulled it off, uh, someone would talk. That, that's the, the basic argument against the, this being a conspiracy. Uh, what people forget is that we kept the secret of the Manhattan Project and the atomic bomb for several years, and it involved over 100,000 people. Our government is quite capable of keeping secrets, and the people involved in these kinds of things 
seldom know what they're involved in. It's it's compartmentalized, a need-to-know basis. There are a lot of sections. So the idea that the government uh, couldn't do this, um, there's a joke that Sigmund Freud used to tell about a, a, a guy who loaned a pot to a neighbor, and the neighbor brought it back with a hole in it. And the, the person who loaned him the pot complained, and he said, well, you never loaned me a pot. And when you gave me the pot, it was it had a hole in it already. And when I returned it, it was in perfectly good condition. So you're making you know these multiple <laughs> arguments against the possibility of conspiracy theory that are that are stretches. You know you're having to to say well it couldn't happen, but if it did, they would talk or they would have failed and so on. The simpler explanation is that this could have been a, a plan and, and designed to spark a concern about terrorism that the powers that be may have suspected would have, could have led to a nuclear uh, suitcase nuclear bomb in Chicago or somewhere. And so to prevent that and uh, strengthen the nation's defenses, they may have allowed something to happen and known it was coming. The other thing I would say is if we look at the terrorist events since then, look at what they're like. The, the tennis shoe bomber, the underwear bomber, the bomb that didn't go off in Times Square. I mean, most of these terrorist attacks are you know, very uh, ad hoc, very amateurish. And what 9-11 looked like was a Hollywood event. And then you had the anthrax letter attacks, which we know... The anthrax strain came from the U.S. Army. And what we should be saying based on the anthrax is, well, maybe it was an inside job. Maybe somehow the, this was actually plotted against us. It doesn't mean that it was, but to rule out suspicion is, is as I said, un-American. We should be vigilant to protect our liberties. Our assumption should be that this is quite possible and that our government is... I mean, this... This government flew to the moon, got people to the moon. This government invented the atomic bomb. This government developed the Internet. This government is quite capable of doing enormously sophisticated things. So to rule out a false flag attack of some sort, uh, just on the grounds that you just, you, know, you just don't think it's possible, really, I think, underestimates the sophistication of the government and, uh, and rejects our long... American tradition of suspicion against top leaders. Now, I have to ask you, it's just curious to me, at the beginning of the show, I talked about how I kind of, at least my perception, and my perception could be wrong, is that conspiracy theory almost seems to be at odds with academia, and I could see a lot of academes kind of uh, uh, putting up their nose to it and, 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 and saying, well, that's just silly. Um, in your experience, how have your theories on conspiracy theory uh, been treated and accepted by your, your fellow academes? Well, what I have done is, uh, essentially I've said that the way we study conspiracy theories in, in journalism and amateur investigators are not scientific. Looking at these events one by one is not a scientific approach. The way science works is it labels things, it looks at uh, things, multiple examples of the phenomenon and tries to draw conclusions about it. 
And so what I have suggested in my journal articles, in the book that uh, I just published, uh, was published by the University of Texas Press, an academic publisher, what I have been saying is we need to approach these events scientifically, criminologically. We need to ask, for example, uh, assassinations. Who are the targets? What is the timing? When do they occur? What are the policy consequences? Uh, across a multitude of events. Uh, a simple thing with the assassinations is they're, all, they're presidents. They're presidents and U.S. senators when the Senate is evenly divided. I, I jokingly tell my students, don't fly on the plane with a U.S. senator when the Senate is evenly divided. It's the only time these two people become targets, but Patrick Leahy and Tom Daschle received the anthrax letter attack when it was the Senate was evenly divided. Paul Wellstone's plane crashed. It's just these are you know odd coincidences if you believe in a coincidence theory. Um, the other time, the other targets are presidents, and those are typically targeted when the vice president is more of a hawk and the president is more of a dove, uh, which, you know, what that's telling you is that there are criminogenic circumstances. You don't have to believe in conspiracy theory, but you can believe that there are times when, uh, when the uh, circumstances call forth or conjure or, or lead to, or likely to lead to attacks on our top leaders. And if that's the case, we should have protections against that. If if uh, presidents are targeted during election years, and they're mainly when the vice president is different, when those circumstances arise, uh, you know, double up on your protections against for, of the president. Uh, when these assassinations occur, make sure that you've double checked what the leaders were up to. I've, I've suggested that we designate these crimes, I call them state crimes against democracy, but they used to be called high crimes, that we designate them in the law like hate crimes or racketeering, and we give more severe penalties and we establish an, uh, institutions to investigate them independently. The way it works now is if there's an assassination or defense failure of a huge magnitude like 9-11, the investigation is ad hoc. The president, who may be a likely suspect, is in charge, decides who to put on the committee or the commission, tends to load it up with people with conflicts of interest or, or friends, drags their feet. You know, in the case of the 9-11 commission, uh, the president drug his feet for a year, finally establishes it, wants to put Henry Kissinger in as the chair of the commission, but the families raise problems with that, and Kissinger bows out, and he appoints somebody, Philip Zelikov, who's got close White House connections. And then the president and the vice president insist on testifying together, privately, and not under oath. Uh, you know, if these are potentially people who are responsible for some of this, even if it's just a failure to adequately prepare our defenses, uh, why should we give them this kind of special treatment? It's, it's just, uh, 
counterintuitive and, and counterproductive. So I would suggest that we, uh, what I've suggested in my writing is that we think in terms of a category of crime. Stop thinking in terms of this conspiracy, that conspiracy, this other conspiracy, and think in terms of high crimes or state crimes against democracy that are undermining the democratic processes of our government and designate them, study them as a category of crime, develop um, a nomenclature. So we we should have different types of crime that we study, the assassinations, for example, defense failures, uh, cover-ups after the fact, and so on. And we can study this scientifically by abstracting away from the specific events and trying to understand the role of high crime in American democracy. Well, it's a fascinating discussion and a fascinating perspective. Dr. Lance DeHaven-Smith, we appreciate your time today. Where can people uh, find your recent book? Uh, because I think that uh, I think that it would be an absolute uh, must-read if you are interested in the area of conspiracy theory. Conspiracy Theory in America is the title. It's available on Amazon, or you can order it directly from the University of Texas Press. Excellent. We thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Doctor. We appreciate it, and um, we look forward to, to reading the book. Thanks for having me on the show. And thank you, fellow Buckeye. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Well, thank you so much, Doctor. And thank you for tuning in to Conspiracy Corner. A little bit different show, but I really enjoy uh, the the intellectual treatment of this subject because sometimes I think that. that maybe we, uh, those of us who believe that there may be a little more out there, we play into the hands of those who just want to scoff at the idea of conspiracy theory. Because sometimes we really kind of go off, <laughs> off the wall and, and don't come at it at an intellectual perspective. So I think this is very valuable. We thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time on the Conspiracy Corner. Thank you so much. Bye bye.